Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Like a winter-killed cover crop is like the most beautiful thing because it's going to do all the work for you, basically, and get you where you need to. This week on our show, we speak with IU Campus Farm Manager Aaron Carmen Sweeney about regenerative agriculture practices and how they can come in handy when you start a farm on land without any topsoil. Harvest Public Media has a story about goat farmers contracting with forest managers for removal of invasive plants, and it's pesto season. We'll walk through the steps of harvesting your basil and turning it into a tasty pasta sauce to last you all winter long. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Let's start with food news from Renee Reed. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. Farmers across the country have faced labor shortfalls as seasonal workers have skipped harvest season during the pandemic. The worst hit crops require the most amount of labor, such as cherries, plums, and apples. Unlike many crops, cherries repel machine harvesters and other labor-saving production tools because of their fragile nature. They have to be picked by skilled hands and shipped right at the moment of ripeness. That shortens the window to get them to retail shelves and makes them more subject to bruising and splitting along the way. The Washington State Tree Fruit Association says that during an eight-week harvest season for cherries, up to 24 billion individual cherries have to be picked and sorted before getting shipped to market. Even before COVID-19, the number of seasonal farm workers, often immigrants without legal permission to work, had dropped in recent years. Many have left the industry due to poor pay, exploitation, and border crackdowns. But labor shortages due to the pandemic this year have left farmers desperate to find help during harvest, leaving a wake of crops rotting in the fields. The Seattle Times reported this week that in Okanogan County, Washington, cherry pickers described lapses in safety measures against coronavirus, such as failure to do daily temperature checks or neglecting to report signs of illness to keep workers in the field. Many workers went home in July due to fear of rising infection rates on farms. Seasonal contracts normally extend to November. After COVID-19 closed meatpacking plants and slashed ethanol demand, agriculture markets plummeted. While prices have improved, Nathan Kaufman at the Kansas City Federal Reserve thinks farm incomes could stay low into 2021. In an environment where there are substantial concerns about the broader economy and demand growth, the outlook for prices is still relatively weak. Congress will float many farms this year with billions in aid, but Kaufman says payments have their limits. Farm income has been falling for years due to low prices. The government support will offset some of it in the short term, but it doesn't necessarily resolve what had already been building. And while it's too early to tell, Kaufman says some markets, like beef, could see another drop in demand as grocery store prices continue rising. Thanks to Christina Stella of Harvest Public Media and Chad Bouchard for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
college campuses are opening up or going virtual or something in between all across the country this month. And here in Bloomington, the students have arrived and classes start next week. I thought it might be a good time to visit the IU Campus Farm and talk with farm manager Aaron Carmen Sweeney. We are walking around the IU Campus Farm, which is at the Hinkle Garden Farmstead. The farm is located on 10th Street, west of the bypass in Bloomington. They focus on fruit and vegetable production and distribute the harvest to students through IU Dining Services, to the general public through farm stands, and to those in need of food assistance through donations to Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Aaron Carmen Sweeney grew up on an organic farm but truly discovered his passion for sustainable food systems after he left home. I went off to college, and the summer reading that they made my entire freshman class do was Omnivore's Dilemma. And I was like, wow, you know, the, uh, the world is trying to teach me that the way I've been raised and grown up is a, a good and important way to be producing our food and the way we should be producing our food. Got more interested in it from like a different perspective. It was never like an academic thing for me growing up. It was just like, this is what we do. And then I started to study and realize all of the problems with the larger industrial food system. Aaron has a degree in geography and environmental resources and loads of experience in growing food and sharing farming skills with others. He's been running the farm from the beginning and it's a good fit. With about five acres for crop production, the farm hosts four high tunnels and several large open air fields for growing specialty crops. Aaron gave me a tour of the farm at peak growing season, starting with the first area they planted. Our main growing area for 2018, 2019, and this year, because this is the only part of the property where the soil wasn't stripped, all the topsoil wasn't stripped away. The farm faced a huge challenge when they first broke ground in 2017 due to the condition of the land itself. At some point, one of the heirs of the Garten estate was looking into developing the site for condos or apartments and sold off the topsoil. I didn't even know that was a thing that you can sell topsoil. Oh yeah, people buy topsoil all, I mean, you can go to Speedway and buy topsoil and it's just, you know, soil that they stripped off a of land somewhere because they wanted to flatten it. Any, anytime, if you're anywhere near a building, the topsoil that you're dealing with is very likely not the native topsoil. Okay, good to know. Earlier, I said the farm was dedicated to growing specialty crops. What that basically means is fruits and vegetables, as opposed to corn and soybeans, which are the typical Indiana crop crops. Of beans, there's some kabucha squash, butternut squash, more beans for the fall. This is our zucchini that we're just starting to pick, so it's kind of the timing has worked out where like that stuff is fading and this stuff is just coming on. We've got a big row of a couple different colors of like pink and yellow tomatoes, more beans, some peppers, there goes a rabbit, <laughs> and some cherry tomatoes. And then this is our first year growing sweet potatoes. In spite of the land being stripped down to hard pan clay, they've managed to build up the soil through an approach referred to as regenerative agriculture. This includes methods such as winter kill cover cropping. Cover crops are great for a lot of reasons, which, which people can look into, but basically just, just having living roots in the soil 
And then uh, what I like to do is, is have a nice mixture of different plants, not just a single thing. Because the, the diversity basically, when it dies, it can compost in place and provide those nutrients. And for a couple of reasons, that's a lot cheaper than buying compost. And you know, people say, well, why don't you just make your own compost? Well, on the scale that I'm at, I would need like industrial quantities of compost and huge equipment to turn. So a cover crop can kind of create that biomass, that organic matter in place. And then the nice thing about a winter killed one is that terminating it is not a problem. It's gonna die. So it's, you know, it's a warm season crop like a buckwheat. This will probably be like sorghum sudan grass, sun hemp, and buckwheat, which are all gonna die at the very first frost. And then they'll just be able to break down and be a mulch all winter. So they'll protect the soil. And then by the time the spring comes around, almost all that material has fully like broken down into the soil. You know, you might rake aside a little bit, but you can just get right into the soil and it's ready to go and it's added some nutrients. And if you have a legume in there, like in our case, the sun hemp, that's gonna have some nitrogen for you. So that's kind of our main fertility program because compost is just expensive and not always attainable and obviously we're using organic methods so we're not bringing in like ammonium nitrate or anything like that because we use cover crops and the, the way we approach farming we call it regenerative agriculture trying to build life in the soil with you know all of all of these different roots in the soil that attract different various microbes and fungi relationships like a winter killed cover crop is like the most beautiful thing because it's going to do all the work for you, basically, and get you where you need to. Some areas of the campus farm are used for research and experimentation as sort of a living laboratory for classes at IU. Textile artist and IU professor Roland Rickles is growing indigo on the campus farm for projects in natural dyeing. Professor James Farmer, who oversees the campus farm, brings his students out for hands-on learning and sustainable agriculture. And biology professor Heather Reynolds is conducting a trial on the use of living mulch. So this, like the living mulch of the clover is here. And she has a map of it so she could tell me better. But, and I think this one's like a... Hairy vetch or something. This one has hairy vetch and yeah, and rye that got mowed down. Then there's a straw one. And this one is a leaf mulch, strip mulch. So there's these different mulching approaches. They're all no-till seen which is most effective and she did this trial on a, a larger scale trial it took up like this whole plot last year and she did it on two other farms and universally it seemed I think to find that the straw mulch was the most effective and that was that was pretty much the farmer control of like okay what would you normally do and so so the living mulches all the all the kind of more experimental stuff was found to be less effective um, but uh, there might be reasons to tweak it and try something else, yeah. try something slightly different. And maybe if it works, but isn't the, the most effective, but right. it still works, still then maybe it's still worth worth trying, trying out. Yeah. yeah, totally. So yeah, this this part over here looks more traditional with the straw. Right, right. Effective, but one of the agricultural experiments on the farm is managed by Aaron and the other employees of the farm. Basically, the we're comparing the open field to the movable high tunnel to the permanent high tunnel and seeing just how they perform. We're growing the same crops. We've got tomatoes and peppers in each of these spots for the summer anyway. A lot of people want to grow tomatoes in their tunnels because it's just a, a highly profitable crop and it's a good space to grow that. So they'll build a tunnel and then they'll want to do that year after year. And it's like, well, 
okay, that's not great for the soil. With organic growing methods, it's not great for the soil to plant the same crop in the same place year after year because you can end up harboring pests and diseases in the soil that affect that particular crop. Ideally, you rotate your crops so that one piece of land would have, say, tomatoes one year, then green beans the next year, then carrots the following year, and then you could return to tomatoes. Different types of crops deplete the soil of or supply the soil with particular nutrients as well. But by having a movable tunnel, I can move my tunnel and be growing tomatoes in it again next year on a new patch of ground that didn't have tomatoes in it last year. And grow something else where the high tunnel was. Yeah, exactly. And it encourages you, again, those cover crops. A lot of people don't ever plant cover crops in their tunnels because you want to do you know, your tomatoes in the summer and then you do your leafy greens in the fall and winter and you kind of always have it in some kind of cash crop because uh, it's too valuable a space to not do something like that. Um, but with being able to move the tunnel, then you have outdoor space where you can, you know, throw in a cover crop and kind of uh, get a chance to revitalize that soil. Okay, um, so you're calling these movable tunnels, but to me they look huge and really hard to move. So, so what... This is all, there's a rail here, and this is a track. There's a wheel on the rail, and then everything is just anchored in. So these cables connect it to the rail, and then there's earth anchors there. But all that stuff comes right off. And then the walls, the walls flip right up, and then I, we've moved this with as few as four people. Just push it down the track, you know. You get a little grease on the ball bearings on the wheels, and yeah, it runs right along, so. So yeah, these building-sized structures, the size of, say, a double-wide trailer, they're basically an arched metal frame covered with translucent plastic sheeting. They're, they're on tracks. You move them by rolling them on the tracks. And we have planted lettuces and greens. And once that stuff was established and looking good, we moved it along so that we could go ahead and get our tomatoes planted and, and stuff for the summer. You've got carrots galore right now, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, replace that with carrots, yep. And then all, all the first plot where it was, that's where it was over the winter, that's now all in a cover crop. Oh, um, so there's like three sections There's total. three sections, yep. Yep, and we've just... Oh, so great. Yeah, it's, it's, love it. it's fun. I really couldn't get over the brilliance of the system. It allows the grower to continuously use the covered structure season after season while rotating the crops for optimum soil health. This kind of research on the campus farm involves a lot of record keeping and documentation. Just the recording of the data from the different tomato plots is about 25% of the labor of harvesting the tomatoes, right? So there'll be like three people harvesting tomatoes and then one person like weighing them and being like, okay, this is from that plot, this is from that plot, and put into a spreadsheet. Record keeping is a big part of it, and that's, you know, an aspect of research, an aspect of food safety, and just like good farm management, and knowing knowing what amendments went down where, and knowing what was planted where, and, and keeping track of everything. That was Aaron Carmen Sweeney of the IU Campus Farm. You can find more about the farm on our website, eartheats.org.
Forests across the country have a problem with invasive plants wreaking havoc by choking off native plants and destroying wildlife habitats. A national forest in Missouri is experimenting with goats as a solution. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports it's a natural and cheap alternative to herbicides and mowing. Dozens of Spanish goats are roaming around a field in the Mark Twain National Forest in the Missouri Ozarks. The vegetation is about waist high, making it hard to see them from a distance. They are here to eat Cirrusisa lespediza, a woody flowering herb native to Asia that makes this area uninhabitable for quail and turkeys. Brian Davidson is the botany and invasive species program manager at the Mark Twain National Forest. He says the goats are helping not only with what they eat, but also with what they leave behind. They're defecating all over that, so that that gets incorporated in the soil, and it's a a, a positive. So between what they eat and what they poop, they're the natural weed and feed. Yeah, what goes in comes out, right? So, um, and all of that has a lot of nutrients. The fields and glades in between large groups of trees are super important to the health of a forest. They provide habitat for wildlife, areas for wildflowers to grow that help bees, and act as fuel breaks in case of a forest fire. But plants like blackberries and kudzu can invade and decimate those spaces. Davidson says non-native plants can grow up to 10 feet high. They create a a large canopy, uh, they compete for nutrients, and then they they push out um, and eliminate a lot of the desirable native species that we have. Davidson says getting into these areas to cut away the brush is difficult and ineffective. Using herbicides can kill native plants and is bad for the environment. And the goats are quickly eating their way through the problem in this three-acre field. It will take just a day or two to clear out the weeds, leaving behind tall grasses. This goat herd belongs to Lauren and Elizabeth Steele of Elk Creek, Missouri. They contract with landowners to bring their goats in, set up temporary fences to control where they go, and the goats do the rest. Elizabeth Steele says they got the idea when they were looking for ways to keep trees from coming back to their own land that they had cleared. It's a lot cheaper than running equipment over the land to get rid of those re-sprouts or using herbicides. And so we decided to use goats and then that just started the process for us of looking at what the goats eat and what they are effective on. The Steeles say one of the most common misperceptions about goats is that they will eat anything. Lauren says he often hears the old stories about goats eating tin cans or the sweater right off a child at a petting zoo. But he says goats are not indiscriminate in their diets. And what makes them different is that they will eat plants that no other animal is interested in. So they're pretty picky. However, they will eat a lot of stuff, um, particularly broadleaf plants, and they're not near as much of a grass eater. They eat some grass, but uh, they concentrate on broadleaf and brushy browse type species. The Steels own about 1,500 goats and bring most of them out on jobs like this one at the Mark Twain National Forest. And while the process is very natural, this is a business. The $25,000 contract the Steels have with the Forest Service has specific benchmarks for clearing plants from certain areas. But the goats don't seem stressed by the workload. Lauren Steele says it's a pretty good life for a goat. They get shipped to a new place on a regular basis. So it's kind of like having a new smorgasbord on a, on a regular basis. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's pretty good. 
using goats to control vegetation isn't new. The practice goes back to when the animals were first domesticated. What is new is the targeted approach and using precision planning to take out specific plants in particular areas. Davidson says the next step might be to take the goats out of the open areas and see what they can do among the trees. Where we have a lot of uh, native hardwoods that are encroaching and are impeding pine regeneration and also uh, not maintaining that openness uh, with all that region we get. So we, we're using goats in there to try to maintain that structure. Davidson says he thinks forests will increase their use of goats to help maintain land because they continue to prove to be cheap, effective, and natural. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected, more at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Pesto traditionally is made using a mortar and pestle. And I suppose everyone should try making it that way once, just so you know what it's like. But this time of year, I'm struggling to keep up with everything in the garden. Making hot sauce, canning salsa, making pickles. So I'll take all the time-saving techniques I can find. We'll be making pesto in the food processor, but we start off in the garden. It's late summer. The basil is flowering. So I'm just pinching back the center flowering part of each basil plant. And honestly, you're doing the basil a service by cutting all this back because if you leave it to flower, that's pretty much going to be the end of your basil for the season. So you want to be always pinching back those centers to keep the basil going. It's a good time to cut your basil back, harvest a bunch of it, and bring it inside, make some pesto. So then when we get it inside, we're going to want to put the basil in one of our solid spinners if you got one. If not, you can just rinse it off in a colander. I'm going to be making pesto today to go on a pizza. Later tonight, I'm going to go to a friend's house who has just finished building an outdoor brick oven. And he's going to be making pizza tonight and I'm going to make some pesto that we can put on some of those pizzas. Alright, now it's all nice and clean and fairly dry. So now we just need to gather up all the rest of the ingredients and put them all into the bowl of a food processor. So I need to take all of the basil leaves off of the stems. You don't want those really woody stems inside your pesto. We want a total of three cups of basil, kind of loosely packed. Everything doesn't have to be exactly 
measure it out, but you do want to have a general idea of the proportions. And so that's where recipe comes in handy for something like this. About three cups loosely packed basil leaves. You're just gonna wanna set that aside. And then in the bowl of your food processor, you're going to put the garlic, the salt, and the pine nuts. So I've got my two cloves of garlic in the food processor. And now I'm gonna add the pine nuts, three tablespoons of pine nuts. Next, we wanna add the salt. And I would start with a teaspoon of salt and then you can adjust later for taste. And then we're gonna pulse that until it's finely chopped. So we've got the garlic, pine nuts, and salt in the food processor. Next, we'll add the three cups of loosely packed basil leaves and the olive oil. And the olive oil I'm just going to pour into the top of the food processor while it's processing. And that was one half cup of olive oil. And now we're gonna add a half cup of Parmesan cheese. And this is just kind of roughly grated, and then we're gonna blend that up. You'll wanna scrape down the sides of your food processor. And then as far as texture goes, it's really up to you. A lot of people like to have that leafy feeling in their pesto. A lot of people want it just like velvety smooth, almost like a paste. So that is up to you. I'm feeling like there's a tiny bit more olive oil in this one that I would like. So I would start with a quarter cup and then maybe just add tablespoon at a time until it's the consistency that you want. Now it is time to taste. See if we need to adjust for salt. Mm. No, I think it's pretty good on salt with the cheese in there. It really helps. I also like to add a little bit of lemon juice to mine. I like the acidity and I also feel like it helps keep the brightness of the green basil leaves. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. I like the acidity of that lemon juice. And I just add a half teaspoon, teaspoon, not much. So that is our basic basil pesto. This is great to put on pasta, of course. Any shape will do. You can spread it on toasts. You can put it on a pizza. This recipe, along with so many others, can be found by visiting eartheats.org. includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Aaron Carmen Sweeney. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Thank you.